Our sponsor today on Drinking with Authors is Skunk Brothers Spirits. Skunk Brothers Spirits was started by a family of disabled veterans focused on locally sourced quality distilled spirits. Their name was inspired by their pops, who was nicknamed Skunk. Skunk's father was a moonshiner in Oregon back when it wasn't exactly legal. Now the brothers are taking the family business legal with their Washington-based team using their grandfather's Prohibition-era moonshine recipe to bring small batch spirits to the gorge and beyond. From the moonshine corn whiskey to the apple pie brandy, all of their spirits are handmade in Washington. Believing they already have the best ingredients in the local community, they work with local farmers and suppliers to produce the highest quality spirits from scratch. You can find them on Facebook at Skunk Brothers and on Twitter at Skunk Bros Inc. Or visit their site www.skunkbrothersspirits.com and use coupon code DWA10 at checkout to read 10% off your order. You can always also ask your local retailer to start stocking Skunk Brother Spirits. Regardless of how you get your hands on a bottle or two, grab a drink and don't forget to get skunked. This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. sponsor. Oh, I'm going to go into that in a minute. Okay. My co-host today is J.M. Paquette, and we have the amazing boudoir hair ready Valerie Willis. You'll have to watch the YouTube presentation to see all of that happening right there. I just and, got tired of it being in a ponytail. Okay, but you're just making sounds, and I'm going to introduce our guest now. And our guest is the amazing Cat Blackard. So, woo! Hello. Cat. Thank you for having me. No, absolutely. Let's talk about what we're drinking because that's gone so well from the last episode. To this one. Proof. So I, I am drinking um, Skunk Brother Spirits, that, who's our sponsor. I remembered it this time, um, which is Viking Lightning. And uh, Kat asked me off um, recording what the proof, this is 80 proof. So basically this is like honey fire in a bottle. And I decided to pour it in this particular thing, which I got a... Um, Shut up, Val. I got a cherry limeade. I'm trying to get through this. Don't mess me up. I've never it's, seen you so drunk. <laughs> I'm sure Jen oh, has, but I have not. That's not true. Jonathan Mayberry, I did like an entire bottle of oh, that right. mango habanero whiskey. We were both drunk. I was like a, on a, a whole bottle by this time. I am not going. getting through the intro in the sponsor plug. Can you shut up for one moment? Anyway. Skunk Brother Spirits, DWA10 coupon code, put it in cherry limeade, trying to move on to the next part of this podcast. Val isn't even drinking. Jen, what are you drinking? So that it's we can get fun stuff. See, Val's normally drunk by now, so she doesn't remember you like, being drunk. That's what it is. I'm drinking tea oh, wow. in my gram grammatically, you can't see it, my grammatically I correct. Love this, the Timmy Where are you getting this my tea Timmy. delivered to you from? <laughs> Remy, my lovely husband, brought me a pot. Of I didn't tea even see he saw him. that I drank it. Look, I have a tea cozy because I'm a tea oh, ridiculousness. That looks like a very cozy tea. 
It is. It keeps it warm. So I have a uh, I have Earl Grey with lavender. That's what I'm drinking. And okay, I'm no. drinking dark and stormy. I'm on the, the very end of my second one, and it is um I could have another, but I'll admit I'm feeling it. Uh dark and stormy is, of course, uh, a combination of ginger beer, in this case, Bundaberg from Australia, fresh lime juice, and Gosling's black seal Bermuda black rum. Is that a cat on your is it a glass on your glass? Yeah. Yeah, this is a little got a little sunshine cat yeah, here. This a is cat representative of um my uh my um my brother and and his wife uh made a set of glasses based on my two cats at the time clarion and teakle and this is the teakle glass um and they're both gone now but they're both very loved still that is amazing val what are you not drinking right now though you do <laughs> appear just as drunk as me so i'm just gonna throw that out there i am on cup five of coffee today am i just a cup Okay, caffeine has the same effect with you that, okay, we're moving on because, oh, damn, I don't even know why I let you stand this episode. Okay, so rapid fire questions, Kat, are you ready? Oh, yes. Okay. Bring it on. Okay, what is your favorite book of all time? My favorite book of all time is A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Leangle. Why? Why? Got Here's it. why. Um, I first read this book in fifth grade. Um. Uh, one of the greatest teachers of my life that I've ever had, Gretchen Fletcher, um, uh, was like, uh, you know, like normally it's a sixth grade book, but she she brought it in fifth grade. And gosh, it's such a powerful experience. Um, it is it is the the ultimate um, young reader uh, sci fi. It is extremely complicated. It is a hard science fiction. Um, it dealt with uh, with. You know, it's it's a it's a woman writer writing a female character, telling a, a a heartfelt, like extremely like intense mathematical story about um, oppression and conformity and uh, the human spirit, like like or really not even the human spirit, something beyond like our attachment to our own species, like just like the power of of love fighting against control and conformity. Um, it's really powerful and really beautiful and these days shares space with its sequel, A Wind in the Door. I tend to read them in tandem and I read them as often as I can. Very cool. What is your uh, least favorite book of all time? All time is hard to say. I'd say probably the least favorite books I've ever read are things that, you know, have been forgotten. Things that I bought in high school that had really cool or sexy covers that ended up being just forgettable. But recently, um, I tend to not I tend to not fuck around with things that waste my time. Um, but the, the last book that I read cover to cover that was a steaming hot turd was Armada by Ernest Cline. <laughs> Why? Why did you put that way? No, please. I haven't read it yet. I'm curious. So Ready Player One is a book that should not be good, but I actually really enjoyed it. It had many, many cringy moments but in spite of itself managed to be like not a uh, really trite nostalgia factory, but actually wielded its weaponized 80s media nostalgia to tell an interesting and appropriate story. The scope of its world and universe validated all of its like in-joke references and so forth. Um, however, Armada, the book that Ernest Klein wrote directly following up Ready Player One uh, is absolutely trite and um, complete garbage. It is a, um, 
send up to the last Starfighter and um, Ender's Game and a few other things, but mostly those two things. Uh, the conceit is that like all the times you're, you're reading the book and thinking like, this is just like that media. It's because that media exists entirely so that we can fight off an alien race that we've known has been coming towards us for a long time. And it just ends up being just really, just really poorly written. And all the times in Ready Player One where you thought, gosh, dude, you narrowly avoided being such a weird Mary Sue-like writer, um, just auto filleting yourself and your fandoms. Uh, but somehow you didn't manage to do it uh, during Ready Player One. You're just doing it in broad daylight for all the world to see in this movie and or movie book. Uh, it's a book. Um, and it's it's not it's not great. It's not great. I, I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt because like honestly, Ready Player One is something that like he pulled off that should not have worked. And Armada sucks. Have you read Ready Player Two? I have not. However, I've read the excerpt uh, that involves some really cringy uh, trans stuff where um, where uh, his his character like uh, outs a trans person. And then in learning that this character that uh, he was interfacing with is trans, it without batting an eye effortlessly goes into describing like, but it's okay that they're trans. I've had sex with lots of people. Having sex with somebody was not part of the discussion until all of a sudden it was. Therefore, equating that in Ernest Klein's mind, someone being trans is parallel to his capacity to want to have sex with them. So fuck you, Ernest Klein, you piece of shit. Anyway, I'll do sensitivity reading on your next book, you asshole. What's <laughs> so you really feel now? Yeah, Ready Player Two was not nearly as uh, good of a time as Ready Player uh, One. No, I I'll will tell say you though, it, it, that character. I will say this, not not justifying anything that he did. I will say that to me, that character proves what a dick they actually are in Ready Player One. <laughs> like the movie glorified it, but that character is a dick. He's a jerk. He's a yeah. jerk. He's an asshole. He is not very, um, like zero social skills can take zero social cues and it's um amplified in ready player two and hence the only reason i went okay because that's it was actually more realistic how shitty he was and he didn't try to make him the hero he's not the hero in ready player two when you read the book just for the record not that anybody should read it or support but i i was actually very thrilled i like it when writers um don't try to make their characters fucking heroes when they're not fucking heroes like yeah typically i don't like trashing things when i don't like give it the full fair shot um like having only read the excerpt but the excerpt alone like really got under my skin i should also add i don't think i've ever actually been this drunk in public before not in like a, like a recorded archive <laughs> thing so congratulations the conceit of your show is working in full force can I mention Viking Lightning that I couldn't remember the word sponsor for? Okay, so. So what, um. Oh my God, you are supposed to have a question when you. The brain just short-circuited so hard. What is it like a pet peeve? Like Mark Muncy hates it when they describe it as alabaster skin. Like, is there a pet peeve or a thing that you see writers use that as a reader, you're like, oh, this you know, kind of moment. Uh, I'm not sure if I've ever like codified it, you know, like, um, there's plenty of things I roll my eyes at. Um, 
there anything that'll push you out of the story instantly? Let me ask it differently. Like mm. I have certain things like if that will push me out of a story and I'm fucking done. I don't waste my time. Unlike other people on this call that will keep I'm reading better. Books. I know, but I'm not better. as good as you should be. We're healing her. <laughs> <laughs> I feel obligated to finish. finish. <laughs> I, I'm getting better about not finishing. I'm like, no, this is not worth my no. time. I have, I'm going to answer this in a roundabout way. I have really stepped into appreciating how powerful it can be to indulge yourself as an author and to just follow your passions and to just like vibe with yourself and put that on the page helps gets projects done. It, uh, it, it helps you like, like your passion is generally something that other people can feel. However, um, in instances like Ernest Klein, uh, where people are, I mean, maybe I'm not giving them a fair shot, but gosh, I really tried to like that book and I couldn't. Um, in instances where people seem to like be writing in a really smug way, like a very smug authorial voice that doesn't have any payoff, that isn't a character that just kind of feels like, oh, I'm communicating with the writer right now. And they're really like, they think they're very clever and it's not attractive. Um, I can't get behind that. I don't want to interface with that. I will stop reading. I don't blame you because I read a book to, to be in a narrative that's in a character's tone, not a writer saying, look, I've, I'm telling you a story. It's too telly. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. Favorite um, book to either TV show or movie. I've got a number. I really, I love the art of adaptation. I think it's, it could be, you know, really powerful. Um, you know, there's plenty of, plenty of ways that that's gone wrong over time. Many, many, many that's going to be the follow-up question. Oh. Outstanding. Outstanding. So with that one. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, I, uh, to, 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 to give an extremely heightened example, I love, um, Charlie Kaufman's adaptation of Susan Orlean's The Orchid Thief, the film adaptation. Um, obviously it's extremely different, but it's, it's a very, like, it, it explores the process of what it is to write an adaptation for video of, of a, of a story of the assignment of doing that, of like, of the weird pomposity of, um, you know, of Hollywood saying like, take this thing, this nonfiction story and turn it into a movie somehow, like fictionalize what has been nonfiction, like uh, like dip it through another layer. And Charlie Kaufman dipped it through the layer of discussing him writing it, which is usually a huge mistake. Writers should very seldom talk about the act of writing. It can be extremely gaudy and gauche. It can be very self-indulgent and very stupid but he did it in such a beautiful, abstract and strange way. And for all the parts that were actual adaptations of, um, uh, of the book, The Orchid Thief, they're really fulfilling to me because I'm from South Florida and I know a lot of those places where all those things happen. And it's really cool to see them on film. Very um, cool. Now, now the flip side. Well, I also wanna give a shout out to the original Ninja Turtles film by Steve Barron. Yes. Um, that, that is the greatest comic book adaptation of all time. Uh, it does such justice to Eastman and Laird's work. It highlights all the best parts of the original run from Mirage Comics and, uh, and turns it into this beautiful piece about, um, about family and, um, and connection and, and takes what are preposterous, silly concepts and wields them with incredible humanity. 
And that's a real testament to who Steve Barron is as a filmmaker and who Eastman and Laird are as comic writers. Awesome. So now the flip side. Now flip side. There's a there's a lot of like there's a lot of mediocre examples to this, but I want to stay on theme here. And gosh, <laughs> Ernest Klein, I'm, man, I don't know. Let's let's hang out or something. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're not. So, the Ready Player One movie. It had some really cool moments, but I think it's really fucked up that Steven Spielberg directed that movie, because that film is rooted in culture derivative of Spielberg. Spielberg like is part of the essence of what makes that. You can't ask the man who made that culture to direct a piece from the perspective of fans of that culture. That's gross. That is auto fellatio in essence. I mean, granted, I suppose maybe Ready Player One is just a big piece of performance art. And it was always meant to be this theatrical exploration of how far you could take that idea. But I think that, I mean, like ultimately, you know, like like attaching Spielberg to that project is part of what got it done. It was buzzworthy. We took a movie that's inspired by Spielberg and we got, or a book that was inspired by Spielberg. We got the movie directed by Spielberg. Cool. It's not cool. It's gross. It's lame. I think that some, like the only way to take a story like that that's rooted in, in 80s nostalgia is to have someone who has come from that world, who is cut from that cloth, who understands that sense of like time and place, who could actually anchor that, who could take that, what would, a story that would inevitably always require a massive budget and a lot of effort and so forth to tell this weird dystopian sci-fi story involving a lot of intellectual properties, but to do it right, to make it charming, to take all that, you know, corporate bullshit and make it feel real, genuine, a story about nostalgia and not some kind of, weird blueprint for all the space jam sequels to come that have just like vomited up intellectual property ad nauseum for some weird demonstration of just because we can um and what i'm saying ultimately think, is i don't think that movie would have been made if you didn't have somebody like spielberg attached to it yeah, because 100%. they wouldn't have given the rights over on everything they gave the rights over to be able to do that it's a weird circumstance. It's a, it's a really weird circumstance. And Spielberg, like, you know, he agreed to make that film just so like he could get West Side Story made. Um, but anyway, what I'm saying is I would have done a better job of directing that film um, because that's the culture that I come from. I'm, I'm wearing a members only jacket presently. I am like, I'm, I'm rooted in that culture. I understand that nostalgia, but I do it without being gross about it. I see. So what is another one? Cause you did two for the last one. What is the next one that you would put on the worst dun, dun, dun. book to TV show or mm. movie? Things? Jeepers, Jeepers. Okay. Gem and the holograms. What a turd. Um, oh yeah, that was bad. I I enjoyed watching that that film with with my friends. Um, but I that whole situation was really offensive. Do you recall when they announced that film? Um, they had it was it was a bunch of bros strolling through an office, being like, "Hey, we made the GI Joe movie, so like now we're gonna pivot by like doing Jim and the Holograms." Fucking crazy, right, bro? Yeah, bro. Fucking crazy. Like it was. It was super gross. And, and I don't know, I don't know what their point was. I know they, they made the movie on a shoestring budget. They, they told the fandom that they were going to be um, like involved in the production of it. And 
um, really were misleading about the intentions of the, the user submitted content that was included in that film. Um, they they uh, made a, um, a display of saying that they were going to be involved in like fan interaction and so forth and cared about what people thought, but they, it didn't, it didn't matter. It was a very like weird, unfaithful um, uh, spin on what could be like a really, gem is a very simple concept, a very, a concept that's been done in a lot of different ways, but it's a very fun, like that was the moment in time for a really cool rebrand of gem and the holograms to exist. There was so much happening. I mean, and there's, there was so much then and still is to some degree like happening when the world of like female pop stardom that was really like, you know, we were, we were living in the world that Gem and the Holograms made. That was a really cool yeah. time to reflect on that and to step into that world of glamour, glitter, fashion, and fame. But and instead, it, you, it, you know, it was Hannah Montana, yeah. Yeah, but well, the shitty right. version. Which, which was terrible because around the same time that they were announcing that they were doing the film, um, a friend of mine is a huge Jim and the Holograms, has tattoos and everything. Amazing. And I, I had managed to get her, I said, um, take a vacation day on Friday and we're meeting up for lunch. And I took her to Acme uh, Comic Store in Longwood because Samantha Newark was going to be there, who is the voice of Jim. So yeah. the fact that the fandom, I mean, the place was packed. Like the fandom could have supported a way better project than what those guys gave them and it's it's heartbreaking that they just got a really awkward Hannah well, Montana. Like, here, here Erica goes in her drunken circle forward on this. I think part of the problem when you take fandoms like that because believe it or not as terrible as some people think those Scooby-Doo movies that were made um, are they follow true to those 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 shows like those movies are a live action version of the Scooby-Doo TV shows, right? Regardless of what we want to say about it and all the other things, they're very like along the lines of what they wanted to do. I And I think that um, you can have somebody that is not a fan make a movie as long as they get invested in the fans. But those kind of things, you almost need somebody to like, to your point, like I grew up... Um, you know, I've been a Star Wars fan. I went to the opening premiere at the Chinese Man Theater of Star Wars in 1976. I was there. I was Outstanding. That's um, incredible. You know, I had the whole 80s, like I lived and breathed the 80s, the members only jackets. I won't say how many pairs of faux leather pants with zippers that look like it was in the thriller video. Like Fuck I yes. had this stuff. But if you take somebody who knows how to make films and do all this stuff, and is a fan of the work, you're going to get a completely different presentation than people are looking around on shelves and went, wait, wait, we didn't make a gem in the holograms. Like that's available. People will think we're doing new content instead of regurgitating the same fucking stories five million fucking times because there yeah. is original content out there. Weird, weird that that I mean is. These days, I don't expect Hollywood to have an original bone in its body. It like it is a it is a strange system that is like collapsing in on itself right like i can't expect it to do good things i can't expect it to you know like i can't expect original ideas necessarily to come from hollywood but if the very least they could do is like if you're gonna like interface with a brand like hasbro the very least you could do is um is make a product that's authentic to the material in some regard in some regard 
It doesn't need to be a faithful adaptation. You shouldn't do a faithful adaptation of a children's animated series. You should figure out something cool. I, for one, am a huge fan of the Super Mario Brothers movie. I think that was a brilliant, weird, surreal take <laughs> on that property. I, and I was captivated by it as a child. I thought it was rad. Like those are the people who made Max Headroom. Those are the people who made that movie. That's incredible. Um, Max Headroom is one of my favorite TV shows that I feel was so ahead of its time that people didn't get it. It's kind of like my so-called life. That show mm. was a brilliant fucking show, but it was way like it needed another five years for people in society to fucking catch up and get it. Um, okay, Jen. You said you had all of these riveting questions. Yeah, for Kat. For I questions. didn't say I didn't say riveting. I said I had a lot of questions. Um, Kat, what book are you reading right now, or books? What are you reading? <laughs> Hello, I have ADHD. Allow me to present okay. you with a list. Okay. <laughs> I'm currently listening to the audiobook of *The Lies of Locke Lamora* by Scott Lynch, which is very good. Okay. Um, it was recommended to me by one of my girlfriends and, uh, and it's fucking rad. It's like this, um, like Venetian, uh, like fantasy story. That's like a very, like, like soft fantasy. It's like very restrained, um, because it's an alien world, they're able to kind of wield Orientalism without being gross. Uh, it's very clever. It's very fun. It's very funny. Um, I'm reading Winter's Tide by Ruth Anna Emery's, uh, which is a really beautiful um, 1950s era Lovecraftian fiction, like based on the mythos entirely. Uh, it's about a immigrant from um, the, uh, the Innsmouth raid who like during the internment of uh, Japanese Americans during World War II was paired up with like, like ended up interfacing with the Japanese family when all of her fish folk people like were dying off like and then eventually like once they released the uh, Japanese Americans after World War II these fish folk like got kind of like the, those those that were still alive got integrated back into society and then she's getting pulled back into this mythos caper which is really really fun and beautiful it's so well written I'm really loving it um, I'm reading Policing Sexuality by Jessica R. Pilly um, that's a uh, history book it's part of my research for the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program um, it's about the establishment of the federal, uh, the Bureau of Investigation, and then later the Federal Bureau of Investigation, uh, based on the implementation of the uh, the Mann Act, which was a very uh, loosely worded, um, still existing law that um, policed was it was intended to police sex trafficking, but was based on a, uh, unsubstantiated fear of what was called quote unquote white slavery, which is just uh, like a fear of like uh white cishet christian people of like um people who aren't that um it's really like ugly and horrible and um it's going to be the basis for a lot of work that's coming in our fourth series um where two of our principal characters are bureau of investigation agents um uh i'm uh reading grace for grace a collection of short stories by steve dejournet steve dejournet is a wonderful film director who made the movie miracle mile one of the greatest and most unique films ever made uh it's from i believe 1988 um and it's extremely haunting and beautiful um uh this short story collection however is brand new uh, it's really cool to see a new offering of of, of stories by a, a writer like him um uh and I'm also, the thing that I read just before bed, because it makes me feel so good, is a piece of fan fiction called This Is How We Grow by Partly Cloudy Skies with illustrations by Secret Soup. It is a combination of the recent DuckTales show with Stardew Valley 
in a uh, lesbian romance um, setting and it is my jam. I don't believe in guilty pleasures, but if I like, if I knew shame because the society wanted me to feel it, I'd be like, ooh, I shouldn't talk about this because it's like too indulgent, but it is so, it is very well written. It is super cute. It like ticks all my boxes of cute girls, like in cottage core settings, like being awkward and loving each other. And that is my entire deal. <laughs> That's awesome. Love it. Okay, Val, um, I'm gonna give you a question. No, you you rein it in over there. Oh, I, have, oh. I have so many. I thought she was she was gonna be a treasure literary breeze because she had all the questions saved up from last. Okay, episode. Val doesn't have any. Back to you, Jim. Um, last show you binged on Netflix? Ooh, Not Netflix. That last less binged show. Okay, so I don't I don't binge shows. I'm not super into that. Um, mm -hmm. like I I like to have things in small bursts. Um, hmm, what did I, what did I consume a whole bunch of at once? I consumed a lot of Great British Bake Off at once for research. That was I beautiful. I love that show. That is my relaxing jam. I actually just wrote a script for work based on the Great British Baking Show. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> I'm working on a, a project that I can't say too much about, but it's like, uh, it's a, um, it's a horror erotica and I was watching the Great British Bake Off for research. So I hope that speaks to like the vibe that it comes from. Oh, that um, sounds amazing. <laughs> um, hmm. Um, recently, I didn't binge it per se, but um, uh, Midnight Diner Tokyo Stories uh, is amazing. And I watched a number of episodes of that in a row and I guess I'll count that as binging. That counts as um, I just rewatched. Re it's I watched all the Dexters, the new Dexters. Uh-huh. I was actually I'm, really, really impressed because the way they ended the last Dexter show was fucking garbage. I heard bad things, yeah. Yeah, no, it was fucking garbage. He goes into a boat into the middle of a hurricane. It was stupid. Um, so, but this was, this was actually, again, written very, very well where a lot of people like Dexter as a character. You will not like him at the end of this show. Well, that so, seems authentic and good. Cool. Yes, I liked it a lot. Okay. Um, I have a good question that C.R. Rice tends to ask on the show, and I think it's kind of brilliant. If you could be a, any fictional character, who would you be, but you have to be their story? Meaning you right. can't just be this cool character that's taken out and you're in the real world. You are doing the story that they have. I'm stuck in a line. I'm living their life. That existence is mine. Am I aware of it? Yes. Oh, that's, that's creepy. <laughs> I just um, went meta on that. Nobody's asked me that question, but I decided like you're past life. Like who's, who do you want your, I'm watching all these Korean melodramas I'm... right now about past lives. Yeah, I know it was it Bankazal or whatever. The Bul Bulgasol. Bulgasol is on Netflix. So good. Mm. Just saying. Okay, stop with your Korean dramas. <laughs> Let her answer the question. Shut up. Well, no, they're, they're, they're doing me a great favor. They're helping me stall. Um, this is uh good at that we're good at stalling uh, it's a very it's a very challenging question i don't tend to internalize characters that way um and there are characters that i like there are characters that i love there are characters i partially identify with but um but in terms of like being trapped in their path obviously i'm going to choose somebody who has a good outcome i think that's a that's a wise move um <laughs> choose somebody that doesn't die at the end of the tale somebody who has like like growth that i'm into or hooks up with somebody that i like that's a good that's also a good move um fuck 
uh, there aren't enough, there is not enough queer lesbian fiction um, to sustain my wants and needs in this, in this particular context. Uh, shit. You know, it's, she's lived a hard life, but I want to step into the power suit of Samus Aran from the Metroid series. Uh, oh. I want to be, I'm going to be raised by Chozos to be the bat, most baddest bitch bounty hunter in the entire galaxy. I want to go through the trauma of like living through a space explosion and having Metroid DNA like grafted into me. So like, I'm not fundamentally human anymore and can in, and, like absorb the X parasite and stuff like that. Like I'm going to go all in, but you know what? I'm going to save the universe time and time again and, uh, and inexplicably lose my power-ups and then regain my power-ups. Um, but I'm playing Metroid Dread right now, and I think that's really coloring my answer. Um, so that's my answer. But also, it's kind of like not fair because like one of my girlfriends is totally like Samus Aran incarnate, and like I feel like I'm stealing her vibe. But, but you know, let's we can both be Samus Aran, and we can both kiss, and that's pretty rad. There you go. <laughs> I like it. Go. Okay, <laughs> Jen, what's your next question? Since you had so many, yeah. Um, influential album from when you were a teenager. Oh gosh. Yes. Okay. Cool. Um, so there's a lot. Um, music is, is like, is everything to me. Um, I'm like, when you dip into my influences, like when you really get into like, Hey, so like what stories influenced you? Like I usually start listening off concept albums instead of like movies or books. Um, so this is complicated. Um, but let's see teenager. Um, hmm. The biggest one was probably the wall by Pink Floyd. It's uh, it's, I mean, classic. It's not, good stuff. It's it's a it's a classic. It's very good. It's extremely dark. Super unhealthy. Um, but like, but also like, I mean, gosh, there's moments of like incredible beauty in that record. Also. Wow. Okay, Val. I'm gonna let you have the last question. So start thinking on it because I don't want to wait for you to come up with it. So I'm gonna. Oh God. Can we can we talk more about like modern music? Like, what's on your playlist now? What do you listen to? All right. Wild. Okay, cool. So ever since I stopped working in music journalism, I've been like a little bit behind on things. Um, I, uh, I love uh, Heim's record from last year, Women in Music Part 3. Um, that is just an absolutely phenomenal record. Um, gosh, what else? What else recent have I been listening to? Um, I discovered that I like Foles. I'm into their last two releases that came out the same year. Um, and, uh, there's an artist called Jordan Lenning. He's a little bit off the radar. He was the lead songwriter for a band called non-commissioned officers who I really love. And, uh, he put out a record, um, this past year that is absolutely stunning that, gosh, I cannot for the life of me remember the name of it right now. Wait, I want to say like three colored wall. Or something like that. Anyway, it's it's sublime. He's an incredible songwriter. I, I genuinely think he's one of the great songwriters of this moment in time, but no one really knows who he is. He's better known as a producer at this point. I just want to point cool. out what JM just did was write all of that down so she can increase her playlist. That was it was literally a completely yeah. selfish question. Yeah, she's been she totally relying on my playlist because when we write at night, I'm like, she's like, hey, Val, you gonna play music? And I'm like, which of my playlists do you want? And they're all named after different book series I write. 
because my playlists are all movie based. I just play. I'm a soundtrack person, so I'm like, what yeah. movies or TV shows? So I have a soundtrack. I have my own. Well, so I, have, I, I have a writing playlist. Like I used to. I'm I'm actually very synesthetic. Like um, you know, like I I get visuals from sound. Um, but I've I lost my ability to write to lyrics. Like in terms of like like having like conscious like verbal thoughts at the same time as like having vocals that I can perceive. So I've now had to start curating writing playlists specifically to, to create like, you know, nonverbal experiences or at least ones that aren't in English. Um, yeah, I know. I, I get Agreed. It. Agreed. Like that it. is totally okay. okay. So Val, are you, you're going to have to wrap up. So Val, what, what what's is your favorite visual artist or comic book? I've always been like a fan of Jim Lee and J Scott Campbell and Gen 13. That was my jam growing up. Right on. I was I was really big into this is like not the answer to the question, but I was really big into I think when like I want to say his name is like Adam Wan did like the Gen 13 bootleg series like it was like the, the, the most manga thing yeah. that had ever been printed by an American company. It was so fucking wild blew my fucking mind um, back when I was a kid. Um, anywho, uh, visual artist comic art. Wait, so is the question about like comic artists specifically as an illustrator or or, or like, just just art because art's part of your your background and stuff and i yeah. don't think we got to a chance to totally dive into it so i was curious if you're more influenced by comic artists or if there's a particular visual artist that that inspires you yeah um i take in a lot of aesthetics from different places generally i cast like a wide swath when it comes to like um uh you know aesthetic influences and so forth but with with comics um oh gosh um, it's a, it's a deep well. Um, someone who's been extremely influential to me, who is an extraordinarily problematic figure, um, but is a wonderful storyteller and incredible visual artist, is Dave Sim. Uh, that's the creator behind Cerebus the Aardvark, um, which is the uh, the it's not the longest running comic book by a single author anymore. Spawn recently like kind of kind of claimed that title, but it's the longest sequential narrative uh, written and drawn by the same person. Uh, he also had a background artist uh, named Gerhard, who's um, equally amazing. Um, this story started as a parody of Conan the Barbarian starring an aardvark and turned into an incredible like literary analysis parody piece that spanned all kinds of uh, like genres and moments in time and like artists communicating with his uh, with his creation self-reflection and it's it's beautiful and fascinating and um uh unfortunately dave sim like is um an increasingly problematic individual uh and um to a degree that like i really struggle with um and won't really get into he loves to harp on how people think that about him but the fact of the matter is like it's not his feelings on like race gender and sexuality are, are really fucked up um, but, but damn, if he didn't make an incredible piece of art that I, I really intensely celebrate. And I'm grateful that he's a Canadian because thus so far, it seems to me that he's for all of his like really regressive opinions that he expresses and everything, like he's been polite enough to sort of like, you know, keep it in his own lane and share his opinions, but not like, you know, not, he's not an, he doesn't appear to be an Orson Scott card, like Orson Scott card who sat on like a board of people trying to make sure equal marriage didn't happen. Like that motherfucker, like Dave Sim isn't that motherfucker. Um, so at least there's that. At least there's that. 
the final line of the episode here. No, just kidding. Uh, so, Kat, shameless self-promotion time. Tell people where to find you and not in a well, creepy show up your house kind of way. I sure hope not. Thanks for asking, Erica. Um, you can search Cat Blacker. That's cat with a C, like meow. Um, basically everywhere. Um, but on Twitter, <laughs> I'm... <laughs> I'm, on Twitter, I'm Neon Feline uh, because Twitter uh, refused to recognize my right to claim the Cat Blackard account, which I don't know who the fuck used that. I'm going on a rant here, but somebody created my name as a Twitter account before I existed as Cat Blackard, I guess, um, and violated Twitter's conditions. And then I started a company like using my name to fund my efforts as a diversity consultant and sensitivity reader, having a company, assuming that that would mean that I could get the attention of Twitter. I shouldn't be going on this rant, but this is drinking with authors and you expect tangents and drunkenness. So here we are. Anyway, I jumped through all of Twitter's bullshit gatekeeping hoops to try to take something that has my name and my brand associated with it so when someone types cat blackard into twitter they don't get an account that has clearly violated their terms of service it has nothing to do with me they said oh well you know you, you can't prove that anybody tried to just defame you so we're not gonna even though it's just like an ugly thing that we've got out there you don't get to have it no one gets to have it it's just still gonna be there so i'm neon feline now and you know what that's a pretty rad name and i spent a long time coming up with it um, you can also visit me at catblackard.com, which currently directs to my Patreon, which is patreon.com slash catblackard. Someday it'll be a website, I think. Uh, and you can find the show that I'm best known for, the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program, on your favorite podcast player or at cthulhumystery.com. Awesome. Ooh. I love shameless self-promotion rant. Sandwich self-promotion. It was the best sandwich ever. <laughs> I love sandwiches. <laughs> I, I, I love me some sandwich. Okay. Kat, you have been so fucking amazing to have on this show. You have just been a thrill and a delight and so many other adjectives that I will get edited on by Jam Cat. so I'm not going to do it. Oh, fuck off. Really, fuck off with your soberness. Nobody is interested. Um <laughs> If she would knock your tea off the desk, she would. Now, aside. (laughs) Anyway, you have been thoroughly awesome to have on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. This has been Drinking with Authors Literary Briefs. Our sponsor, DC, I thought about it a little bit before you did. (laughs) Scott Brothers Spirits, DWA10. If you want to try any of their libations, and I heavily, heavily encourage you to do it. They're amazing, they're funny, and they are true supporters of authors. They really are. And so this has been, um, well, totally went off on a tangent on my thing. This has been Literary Brief. I've been your host, Erica Lance. My co-hosts have been J.M. McCann Valerie. The list we never do that again. And um, our absolutely wonderful guest has been Kat Blacker. Guys, next time. Woo.